Father, as we come to this chapter where Jacob's about to die, about to end his life, Lord, what a life he lived. What a wonderful life he lived. And Lord, we know, and what we're learning from this is the reason he lived such a wonderful life wasn't that he was such a wonderful person, Lord. It was because you were with him. Every step that he took in his life, Lord, you were with him. Lord, he was written in your book of life before the foundation of the world. Lord, you met him at, at, at Bethel, and Lord, you went with him to Padam Haram. You, you uh, were with him at the brook Jabbok when his brother came at him, Lord, and you, he, you wrestled with him uh, and, and let him prevail. Lord, uh, you were with him when uh, he went back to Hebron, and Lord, you were with him when he went down to Egypt, and now as we come to chapter 49, Lord, you're going to be with him as he dies. And Lord, what a wonderful outlook we have to know that death is not the end. Lord, that really as believers like Jacob, and that's what we're going to see here, Lord, we long for death in a certain way. We long for the time when we can be with you. Lord, we want to be with family, we want to be with friends, but Lord, we say Maranatha. Lord, we really look for the day when all of us are walking in heaven with you. And Lord, that is only possible because of what you did for us on that cross. When you sent your only begotten son to bleed and die for us. Lord, what a wonderful gift you gave us when you gave us salvation, Lord. And, and the gift of life and the gift of salvation, Lord, with those two things, Lord, we can face all of these difficulties that we see in life right now that are coming at all of us. And I just ask, Lord, that, that you remind us of that as we look at this very intriguing text today. I ask that you bless it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but probably most of you are like me. I've been a clock watcher most of my life. Uh, I can remember when I was a young boy and, and I was in school, I would watch the clock. I mean, I just couldn't wait for that class to end, and I couldn't wait for that last bell to ring at the end of the day where I could go home and uh, be with, have fun with my friends. I remember when I went to church, I watched the clock. And back then, they only preached like 20 or 25 minutes, but man, I, I watched it. I couldn't wait for that sermon to end and, 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 and leave church. Now, I know y'all aren't like that, right? Yeah, I, I, that's why we got the clock in the back, so you can't watch the clock. If I see you bending your head back there, then, then uh, I know we're in trouble. I remember when I was in business and, and, uh, and accounted and, and all of those years, I remember watching the clock every day, waiting for it to get near five so I could head out of uh, work and, and go do my thing. And, and uh, so I've always been sort of a clock watcher. And when I got saved in 1989, I began watching two clocks. Two clocks that came very, became very important to me. One is the clock of life. I, I, I was 40 years old when I got saved, so I was up in years when I got saved. And so I began to watch that clock because I knew that one day I would die and I would go home to be with the Lord. And so I watched that clock. But I, there's another clock that I watch, and that's the prophecy clock. And I got to tell you, I'm watching both of those clocks right now, and it looks to me like they're about to strike midnight. And I don't know which one's going to strike first, the end of my life or on this earth or 
or, or the Lord's going to return to take me back to be with him. But I've got to tell you, for me, I don't know about you, it's looking like we're getting really close to that clock striking midnight. Well, as we come to chapter 49 of, of uh, Genesis, the clock of Jacob's life is about to strike midnight. And so he's going to call all his sons together. He's already blessed, given the blessing to Joseph through Manasseh and Ephraim. And now he's going to speak this prophetic blessing over all of his sons. And actually, it's a prophetic blessing to some degree that he speaks over us. And, and he brings his sons together, and, he, and it's almost as if he says to them, guys, I've been watching the clock, and my time is up. It's about midnight. And the thing that I've longed for most, the thing that I've waited for most is about to happen. I'm going to go and I'm going to be with the Lord. And, and so uh, as we come to, to uh, chapter 49, we're going to hear the words of a dying man. Now, actually, you're going to watch this and you're going to have to pay attention. But, but he's going to actually be speaking as it's going to be as if God's speaking in the first person, speaking of Jacob in the third person, and then there's time Jacob's going to be speaking in the first person. And it gets a little confusing, but I think it's pretty clear who's speaking. The whole prophecy, and that's the Lord, and he's speaking it through Jacob. But what a wonderful prophecy it is. So, so let's go to chapter 49, and let's pick up in, in verse number 1. We want to pick up in verse number 1 of chapter 49 of Genesis. And, and here's Jacob, and he's got the death rattle. He's breathing heavy. He's lying on the bed. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody dying like that. And, they're, and, they're, and, and they do. They rattle. They literally rattle. And they're breathing, and, they're, and you know their time is just about up. And here was Jacob, and he's, he's about to die. So he called his sons and said, verse number one, Gather together that I may tell you, what shall befall you in the last days. So he's going to speak this prophetic blessing over them. And, and they're going to be attentive to this. They want to hear this. And now, already they know more than likely that the double blessing has been given to Joseph. So as far as the land goes, it's going to be when they get back into Canaan, if they ever do, it's going to be split up among the brothers equally. So that's the way they figure that, the material part of the blessing, the herds and the cattle and all that kind of stuff. But this is the spiritual part of the blessing that we're going to be looking at now. And it's, and it's really important. And it's important to them because they know Jacob is a great patriarch. He's a man of God. And that he's going to be speaking the very words of God. And so they're gathered around his deathbed, uh, not necessarily an age order, but maybe so. And, and they're going to listen to everything that he has to say. And they're going to be listening very intently. And so he begins with these words in verse number two. He says, gather together, hear you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So see, you get the first person and you get, uh, God is the first person and Jacob is the first person speaking in that very verse right there. Because it says, Jacob says to his sons, gather together and hear, and then it goes into the, Jacob becomes the third person, you sons of Jacob, not my sons. He says, you sons of Jacob. And listen to Israel, your father. So God's saying to them, and, very, and, and I no doubt they're hearing this by the Spirit in their heart. God is saying to them, listen very carefully to what your father has to say. And then he takes those old eyes, those eyes that are really dim, and he can, he can hardly see at this point. And he takes those eyes, and he turns his head, and his eyes land on Reuben, 
the oldest. And he begins to give this prophetic blessing to Reuben. And, and it sounds really good at first. Listen to what he says. Reuben, you are my firstborn. In, in terms of a chronological clock, you are my firstborn. My might, my might and the beginning of my strength. In other words, Reuben, you're my, you, when you were born, there wasn't a happier man on earth. You were my pride and my joy. The excellency of my dignity. I mean, the source of my pride. And the excellency of power. In other words, you were at my right hand. You were going to be the right hand of power. You were going to inherit that firstborn blessing. You were going to lead the other children, whoever I had. You were going to lead the clan. You were going to inherit the Abrahamic blessing. You were going to, you were going to receive all of that. But then, listen to what he says. Jacob's speaking now. He says, you, were unst- you are unstable as water. Now, that's pretty unstable. In those days, they didn't have uh, levees, and they didn't have dams, and so the water just went everywhere. When it rained like it's raining out there now, I mean, it wreaked havoc on the land and on the people. And, and so he says, you're like that water. You're, you're, you're as unstable as water. You're a loose cannon, uh, Reuben, and you shall not excel. And Reuben didn't excel. You look at the tribe of Reuben, they, get, they, they landed on the east side of the Jordan, and they never crossed over into the promised land, and, and, and they pretty much, you know, nobody of any significance ever came from that tribe, and, and he, he didn't excel in his life, and he didn't excel in, in uh, uh, when his descendants didn't excel when they came into the promised land. And, and, and then he gives him an example of, of how he was unstable. He says, because you went up, to your father's bed. Again, that's God speaking in the, uh, of Jacob in the third person. He says, then you defiled it. And, and, and Jacob speaks in the, in the first person, and he says, he went up to my couch. So what's he speaking of? He's speaking of the time when Reuben went into Jacob's concubine, Bella, who was the handmaid of Rachel, the mother of, of uh, Dan and the mother of uh, Naphtali. And he went into her, and he had sex with her. And uh, at that time, Jacob said nothing about that. Remember, we talked about that, what a kind of bad father he was, and that he didn't say anything to, to Reuben about this. He didn't discipline him, but now he's bringing it up on his deathbed. And he said, this is the reason. This is the reason you're going to be nothing in your life, because you are un- as unstable as water, and you defiled uh, my, you defiled my couch. Now, he's done with Reuben, and I, that's not such a good prophecy about Reuben, and he turns now to Simeon and Levi, and he speaks to them as a team, as these two brothers, as if they're one, because they acted as one. They were, they were about the same age, and they were big buddies, and so they hung out a lot, and so <coughs> he says to, to, to Simeon, he says to Simeon and Levi, verse number five, Simeon and Levi are brothers, Instruments of cruelty, and the RN, the next two words are not there. You see them in italics uh, because they're not in the original text. Really, I think it reads better by just saying their dwelling place uh, is cruelty. They, they inhabit cruelty. Cruelty was a, a way of life for Simeon and Levi. They were really evil men. 
And, and so Jacob says here, he says, let not my sons enter my council. And I, they're not going to be, you were never close to me because of what you did to other people. Because you were so cruel to other people. I never let you enter my council. Let not my honor be united to your assembly. Uh, you, you guys are evil and I don't want to have anything to do with you. I didn't want to have anything to do with you. And I don't want to have anything to do with you now, really, because, because uh, of all of your cruelty. For, and then he, t- he gives them an example. He says, for in their anger they slew a man. Now, more than likely he's speaking here of the prince of Shechem, who they killed. Remember the prick, prince of Shechem had sexual relationships with Dinah, their brother, and it offended their honor. And so they went out and they killed the prince of Shechem. But that's not, all, that's not the only person they killed. Because look at what he says in the next part of this verse. He says, and in their self-will, for their own self-interest, not for Dinah's sake, for their own self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Now, I couldn't think of anything crueler than to hamstring an ox, to cut the tendons of an ox so that the, on its legs so that the ox can't walk. And if the ox can't walk, the ox can't defend himself, the ox can't work, the ox can't eat. The ox really just slowly dies. And that's exactly what they did to the man of Shechem. If you remember, they tricked them into being circumcised, circumcising themselves, and they were writhing in pain. And while they were writhing in pain, unable to eat, unable to to walk, unable to, to defend themselves, they came into that hamstrung ox and they slaughtered it. They slaughtered all the men of Shechem. Cursed be their anger, Jacob says, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And, and then he listened to the pro- prophetic blessing, if you want to call this a blessing. And actually, for Levi it was, for Simeon it wasn't. It says, I will divide them in Jacob. Now that's the Lord speaking there, because Jacob's spoken of in the third person. And the Lord speaks again, and I will scatter them in Israel. They're going to be a people who are scattered throughout the land. Now, if you look at the history of Simeon, if you were to look at a map of Israel after the distribution of the various parts of Israel to the various tribes, you would see Simeon was landed right in the middle of Judah. And because they were in the middle of Judah, they eventually just were assimilated into Judah, and then many of them were scattered throughout the land, just as this prophecy says. Well, we know about the Levites, right? The Levites didn't get any of the land. They didn't get an allotment of the land in the future. And so they were, they were scattered throughout all the cities of Israel. Now, that necessarily wasn't a curse. That was really a blessing. But, but uh, uh, that's the reason they, uh, God didn't want them teaming up anymore. He didn't want them executing their cruelty anymore. And so that's the blessing that they received. Now, now we come to the blessing of Judah. Who is Judah? Who comes from the tribe of Judah that we're very interested in? None other than Jesus Christ, the line of Judah. And so we come to Judah now, and at this point, Judah's had somewhat of a revival in his life. We saw that uh, a few chapters ago when Judah was willing to give up his life in order to save Benjamin's life. And that wasn't the Judah of the early years. Judah wasn't like that in his early days, but he's changed. And because he's changed and because he's become a man of God, he's going to get a great blessing 
giving to a, to a man of God. Actually, he's going to get the, maybe the greatest blessing of all. Uh, picking up in verse number 8. It says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Judah, the name Judah means praise. So he really is saying praise. You, there's a play in words here. He says, praise, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Now, I hate to almost use this example, but, but you look at what happened to George Floyd and this terrible thing that happened to this man. It's caused a lot of trouble in our country. That policeman put his neck on him to suffocate him. And that's sort of the picture that's given in a totally different context. But Judah's going to be so powerful that he's going to be able to put his hand on his enemy's neck and he's going to be able to suffocate them. And if you look at Judah, Judah had all sorts of great kings. We'll get to that in just a second. But, but listen to what he says. Next, he says, your father's children shall bow down before you because you will be the greatest uh, tribe in, in uh, Israel. And then he says, right now, Judah, you're a lion's well. Judah is a lion's well, but you're, 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 you're a baby lion. You, you're nothing like you're going to be in the future. Uh, in the future, you're going to grow up and you're going to be a fierce, grown lion. And, and, and he says, is that funny or something? I didn't, okay. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp. He says, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? He's going to be so powerful that nobody's going to want to mess with Judah. I mean, you don't go mess with a lion out in the jungle. You don't mess with him. You don't, if he's asleep and you see him sleeping, you walk right past that lion. You don't want to mess with Judah. And you look at the history of Judah, the great kings that Judah had, kings like David, kings like Solomon, like Asa, like Uzziah, like Jehoshaphat, like Josiah, like Hezekiah. They were all great warrior kings. And while they were in power, nobody messed with them. Somebody, some people tried to mess with them, like the Babylonians came down to mess, or the, I'm sorry, the Assyrians came down to mess with Hezekiah and they got wiped out. You know, they got wiped out by angels of the Lord, but, but uh, you didn't mess with Judah. And then now he comes to the most important part of this prophecy. I, I, unbelievable prophecy right here. Listen to what he says. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, now the scepter is the scepter that the king holds. That means the power that Judah had over the other tribes of Israel. The power that Judah had in the world. That scepter was not going to depart. Uh, as he says here, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until, in other words, they will control, Judah will control the laws of the land. They will be the one who give the laws to the land. And they will enforce the law of the land until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The ultimate obedience of the people will come when Shiloh comes. Now, who's Shiloh? Shiloh is none other than Jesus Christ. Shiloh is a form of the word peace, shalom. And, and Shiloh is a name for the Prince of Peace, none other than Jesus Christ himself. So this is no doubt a messianic prophecy. Jacob spoke these words 830 years before David became king over all of Israel. That, this is an amazing prophecy. 
And then what he's, he's saying right here, once David becomes king, Judah will control the scepter until Shiloh comes. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, David and Hezekiah and all those kings I mentioned earlier uh, controlled the, the scepter until, the, uh, until Judah went into captivity under the Babylonians. But under the Babylonians, who was second in command over all of Babylon? A man named Daniel. What tribe was Daniel from? He was from the tribe of Judah. When the Israelites returned back to the land, who was it that returned back to the land? It was the tribe of Judah for the most part. Some, the Assyrians, when they had taken the northern kingdom, had left some Israelites, back in the, left them uh, to, to care for the fields in the northern kingdom. But they were, they were scattered throughout the kingdom, and, and the tribes were pretty much gone at that point, the northern tribes. But Judah comes back into the land. And, and they hang onto that land. Their first king is Zerubbabel. You hear about Zerubbabel over in Zechariah. And they hang onto that land. And then you have the Maccabees, Judas Maccabee later on. And that group was called the Hasmonean kingdom. And, and, and they pretty much ruled the land. So Judah pretty much had control over the land from the time of David until the time Shiloh came. Now it's really interesting that in 6 AD, Caesar Augustus, made a decree that no longer could the Jews, the, the people from Judah, could they control the law. They didn't have power over the law. The power for capital punishment, which was the ultimate power of the law, was taken away from them in 6 A.D. Catch that date. Uh, all of the priests, uh, when that happened, when, when Caesar made that decree... They went out into the streets in, in uh, sackcloth and ashes and they beat their chest and cried out, their word of God must not be true because we were promised that before the law was taken away from us, before the scepter was removed, Shiloh would come. Little did they know that over in Bethlehem, a little boy was born. And what did the angels sing that night? Uh, peace on earth, Shiloh on earth, good will to man. Shiloh had come. And, and, and then Shiloh grew up, and he became a man. And what did he do when he became a man? Let's, let's, let's look at the prophecy. He binding his donkey to the vine. vine. The vine often in Scripture is symbolic of Israel. So he bound his donkey to the vine. I mean, that's, that's a picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and bringing that donkey into Israel and riding on that donkey. And the donkey's coat to the choice vine. And then look at what happens next. Then he died on the cross. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His own blood. He washed his clothes in the blood. Why did he wash his clothes in his own blood? To, for our sins. He became, he who was righteous gave us the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became righteousness for us so that we could have the righteousness of God. He, his blood is what gives us our righteousness. Now, I'm going to tell you what, if you look anywhere else for your salvation other than the blood of Christ, you're in deep trouble. You're in deep trouble. 
Because who is Jesus? Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But who is he now? He's the Lion of Judah. And, and let me tell you what. He looks down on this earth and he, he has wrath in his heart for the things that are going on here right now. But he looks down on this earth and what does he see? He says people who have the blood and people who don't have the blood. And to people who have the blood, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But to people who don't have the blood, he is the Lion of Judah. And look at the next verse. His eyes are darker than wine. In other words, he looks down past the wine. And if you aren't covered in the wine and the blood of Jesus, then he's like a roaring lion. That's who you're going to meet when you meet Jesus Christ. His eyes are darker than the wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. What's he mean by that? Well, when a lion eats its prey, it eats the bones and the, the blood and the guts and the gristle and all of that are in its teeth. But you look at a lion an hour later and his mouth is totally white, white as milk. He's ready to go again. Well, Jesus is like that too in the sense that Jesus is going to come and he's going to, his wrath is going to be poured out on this earth in the great tribulation. But he is justified. He is white. He is pure in what he does. Everything he, every, all of his judgment is righteous judgment. It's as pure and white as milk. And in the end, it will bring forth purity on this earth. So what a great prophecy we get there about Judah. We could have spent all day long on that, but, but you want to, want to do some research and, Study that a little bit yourself. It is a great prophecy. I mean, you get a lot more in a longer study, but we don't have time for that today. All right. Let's go to the next tribe, who is Zebulun. You look on a map for Zebulun, a map of the 12 tribes of Israel. You would find Zebulun right in between uh, the, the Mediterranean coast on the west side and the Sea of Galilee on the east side, but it's landlocked. In, on the map, but more than likely, Zebulun was given some fingers of land out to the sea because, because part of their border was up around Sodom, we're going to see in this prophecy. It's not on most uh, maps, you don't see it that way, but more than likely, they were given access because you, they all those tribes needed access to some sort of water. And so they were probably given access to, to as close as they were, they were given access to the uh, Mediterranean Sea and to the Sea of Galilee. So look at what it says. It says, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and its borders shall adjoin Sidon. And that's more than likely exactly what happened. Then he turns to Issachar, the next tribe. And uh, Issachar, he says, is a strong donkey lying between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder uh, to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. A very interesting prophecy right there. What he's saying right there, Issachar, and, and this is what happened to Issachar, Issachar settled in the land of the Jezreel Valley, which is where Megiddo is. I said last week that Israel is not the prettiest place in the world, but I've got to tell you, one of the prettiest spots in the world is the Jezreel Valley. You stand up on Mount Carmel and you look down on that valley, it is one of the most fertile, beautiful valleys you'll ever see in your life. I mean, it's an absolutely gorgeous place. And they were given that fertile land. But it was so fertile 
that they didn't have to work it that hard, and so they became lazy, and they became very lazy. And they didn't defend the land because they had tribes around them, and so they didn't even mount a, a, a major army. And so what happened was they be- became slaves to all the marauders who would come down and steal their crop. And that was pretty much their history. And so, so uh, they, were, they were a pretty weak tribe too. And then there's old Dan. He says, Dan, which Dan, by the way, means judge. The Lord says, Dan shall judge his people. Now, who do you think of when you think of the tribe of Dan judging his people? That's Samson. No doubt that's a reference to Samson and, and as one of the tribes of Israel. And then he says in verse number 17, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that the rider shall fall backwards. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if you look at the history of Dan, and you had this great judge named Samson, and, and uh, he was sort of like a viper, so you could apply it to some degree to Samson. But if you look at the history of Israel, if you look at that history, uh, and you look at Dan, Dan was originally given the land over there the, near the land of the Philistines. They were given that land on the Mediterranean. It was actually a beautiful piece of land, but the, they were constantly fighting the Philistines, and they were constantly uh, fighting the giants in that land. And so they said, look, we don't want to live here anymore, Joshua. Give us some more land. So they took some land in the far north, up around the Golan Heights in Israel. They went all the way up there, and, and uh, they took land up there. Excuse me just a second. You know, we've had a run of this. People in and out, people in and out, people in and out. It's really, it's, it's, you try it from this end, it's really hard to focus. If you guys could, try to, try to I, unless there's an emergency, try to stay, I mean, I don't want you to wet your pants or anything, but try to stay seated if you, if you can. And I know we're not doing the break before, uh, before we get started, so, so that's probably making a little of us antsy. But try to stay seated if you can. I mean, we've had four or five people coming in and out here in the last few minutes. It makes it really difficult. Uh, anyway, here's... Here's, they, they settle up there in the north. Now, now, it's kind of a chicken thing they did. They ran from that area of the Philistines, and they had lost Samson because Samson had died when he had attacked the, when he had brought the, the palace down on the Philistines. And so they thought they were going to be safer up in that northern part of Israel. So they went up to the northern part of Israel. But stop and think about that. When all of those armies came down from Assyria, and they came down from Babylon, what, what, who did they hit first? They hit Dan first. And Dan couldn't mount an army large enough to fight them, and they weren't big enough to destroy them, but they did cause them trouble. They were like a viper. They, when, when they came through that, through that area, they would attack them. They, were, they would attack them almost in guerrilla warfare. And so they were more like a viper who struck the hill of the horse and caused the rider to fall. And so they, they caused them a lot of trouble along the way. All right, now, here's Jacob. And he's about, he's over halfway through this prophetic blessing. And he's really breathing heavy now. And he knows he's about to die at any second. And he, it's almost as if the heavens are open. And he can see the Lord, too, while all of this is going on. And he's dying. And and right in the middle of this, I want you to go go to your Bible. Look at verse number 18, what he says. 
He says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. I mean, here he is. I mean, he's breathing heavy. Uh, he's, he's, he, 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 the death rattles on. He knows he's going to die at any minute. And so he calls out to the Lord. And he says here, he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Let me tell you, give you that in the literal Hebrew. In the literal Hebrew, it reads, I have waited for you, Yeshua. That's the literal Hebrew. I remember when I was studying Hebrew in seminary, and you were able to read the Hebrew text, and, and, and as we were going through some of these books like Isaiah and Psalms and Genesis, I remember coming across texts like this, and all of a sudden, right there in the middle of the text, would be the name Yeshua. And it would run chills down my spine. And I'd raise my hand. I'd say, guys, you see that? Yeshua. Look at that right there in the Old Testament. Oh, man, that's, you know, they, they'd talk around it. But, but it didn't hit them like it hit me, but, but uh, most of them anyway. But, but, man, it was so exciting to see his name there. I mean, you go somewhere like uh, uh, Psalm 914. Like I wrote down a couple of examples here. He says, I will rejoice in your salvation. Literally, that is, I will rejoice in Yeshua. You go to Isaiah 12, too. Behold, God is my salvation. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, uh, behold, God is Yeshua. I mean, it's plain as day. Right there in Isaiah, God is Yeshua. He is Yeshua. Well, who is Yeshua? Yeshua in... in uh, in the Greek is Jesus, which translated into English, Jesus. Jesus is Yeshua. So what you're seeing when you see the name of Yeshua, you're seeing the name of Jesus. And so what Jacob is doing right here, he's calling out to the name of Jesus. He's saying, I have waited for you, Jesus. The, the angel of the Lord. He had seen the angel of the Lord. I think he saw the angel of the Lord at that moment. He had wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He had waited his whole life to be with the angel of the Lord. And now he's about to be with him forever. And so he cries out, I have waited for you, Yeshua. And then now he gathers himself together here. And, and uh, he prophesies about Gad. And listen to what he says about Gad. He says, Gad is a troop that shall tramp upon, Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, uh, but he shall triumph at last. Gad was a tough little tribe. They settled there on the east side of the Jordan, uh, next to the Ammonites. The Ammonites were a savage people, uh, a savage pagan people. They slaughtered uh, their enemies uh, in a very brutal way. And uh, Gad fought them. They fought them their whole existence. They, they fought there on the east side of the Jordan. Not unlike Ephraim, they were a warrior tribe. And so, so he says they will triumph at last. And then he comes to Asher, the next tribe, and he says, Bread from Asher shall be rich, uh, and he shall yield royal dainties. Now, if you looked on a map again for Asher, Asher would be in that area of Mount Carmel. It would be where, where the port of the modern port of Haffa sits today and that's that's always been a major seaport in Israel and so so I'm sure they traded in in the 
you know, the best goodies of the world, and so he says they shall yield royal dainties. Then he comes to Naphtali, and he almost makes fun of Naphtali here. Because when he spoke of Judah, he spoke of Judah as if Judah was a lion who had been let loose. You'd better look out for Judah. But listen to what he says about Naphtali. He says, Naphtali is a deer who's been let loose. Now, you don't think of, you're not scared when there's a, there's a deer on the loose. And so it, it's kind of, a, kind of a sissy tribe, you could say. He said he uses, he uses beautiful words, but he can't fight, basically, what, what's in the prophecy there. Now, we come to the last two sons and the prophetic blessing that he speaks over them. I want to think about this a minute. Here's Joseph, who's going to be next. And you've got to wonder, at this point, did Jacob know about what the other sons, those sons that he had just spoken the blessing over, what they had done to Joseph uh, that had put him into slavery in Egypt and then ultimately into the power he was in in Egypt? You wonder if they had ever been told about that. I'm pretty sure at this point Jacob knew what had happened to uh, Joseph. But it really doesn't matter because this is being spoken uh, as a prophetic blessing. It's anointed by the Spirit of God. And so really who is speaking here? God is speaking. And God certainly knew what those brothers had done to Joseph. But listen to the blessing now that's spoken over Joseph. It's really interesting. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a whale, by a whale. Now, what's he talking about? Actually, you can translate that Hebrew word by as in, in a whale, in a pit. Remember where Joseph was when all of this started. Joseph was, was, was Jacob's favorite, and he had sent him to check on his brothers, and they had thrown him into a dry well, into a pit. And, they had, and, and when you throw something into a dry pit, you don't expect anything to come out of it. But Joseph was a fruitful bough. It says that Joseph, it says here that, that Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by the well. His branches came up over that wall. Joseph came up out of that pit, on the slavery, on the prison, on the second command in Egypt. And now he's in command. He's in total command. And listen to what it says. The archers have bitterly grieved him. You know, I think Joseph lived with the grief of what his brothers did to him his whole life. Because he understood why they did it. They did it to him because they hated him. And I believe at this point, they still hated him. You know, they liked what he had done for them. Maybe Judah loved him, Benjamin probably loved him, but I think those other brothers didn't care that much about Joseph. We're going to see that in the next chapter, the way they react when Jacob's dead. But but, but, uh, it says they they bitterly grieved him. They shot at him, and, and, and we're told here by the Spirit of God, they hated him. They actually hated him. Now, Joseph's, put in charge over the entire Egyptian empire. He has power to do what? He has power to kill his brothers, to get his revenge. And I got to tell you, Joseph was a strong man, a man's man. 
And I, I got to believe at some point he wanted revenge. I believe when he saw them walk into that room that time, I mean, his first gut reaction was, I'm going to kill them for what they did to me. Those long years I spent in prison, that time in that pit, that time at Potiphar's house, that's all on them. And I'm going to kill them. But there was something that held him back. What was it that held him back? It was God that held him back. He says, he, he, he says but his bow remained in strength. You understand, his bow remained, this is where your bow's in strength. It remained there. Instead of letting that arrow go and killing his brothers, his bow remained in strength. He says, the arms, and the arms of his hands were made supple, flexible, strong. He didn't have to let those arrows go and kill his brothers. He didn't have to do that. Because he was, had a power behind him that kept the bow right here. I remember years ago, I went to my brother's, brother-in-law's house in Ruston. And he's, he's a small guy, but he's got forms about this big. And he had a bow there in his, in his, he had, he had bows and guns and everything. He's a hunter and he had all sorts of bows. But he had a bow, I guess he wanted to toy with me a little bit. And back then I was a little stronger and I was lifting weights and doing some things. So he handed me that bow and he said, pull this bow back. And I took the bow and I, I couldn't, and it had all these pulleys and stuff on it and I couldn't pull it back. I mean, I, I just couldn't get it back. And, and I mean, I don't know how much tension he had on that bow. So he gave me a little bit of a hand and we got it back. But once you got it back, those pulleys and stuff do their job. And you can just sit there and you can hold that bow. There's a power there in those pulleys that keep you from letting that arrow go. See, that's a picture here of where Joseph was, and he didn't let that arrow go. Who had made him strong? Who had given him the power to forgive his brothers? The Lord had given him the power to forgive his brothers. He took that bow back, but he had the power not to strike. You know, I don't know about you. If if you're struggling with forgiveness, if you're struggling with somebody that just won't forgive you, if if there's something, if, if you just can't forgive somebody else, you don't have the power to forgive, but God does. And so you've got to pull as hard as you can. You've got to try to forgive. You've got to make the decision to forgive. But when you get that bow back, you won't strike. And let me tell you why you won't strike. You won't strike because the power of God will be on you. And he'll give you that power to forgive. But people who try to forgive on their own, it, it, I mean, you've got to make that effort. I believe that. You've got to show God that you want to forgive. But when you want to forgive, God will give you the power to forgive, just like he gave Joseph. So anyway, he goes on and he says, he says, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, that's how he held back. From there is the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? None other than Yeshua. Uh, And the Lord is my shepherd. The stone of Israel. Look, let me tell you, if you deserve revenge, in some cases I think we do, who does vengeance belong to? It belongs to the Lord. Who's the Lord? He's the stone of Israel. Now, what's he mean by the stone of Israel? Literally the rock of Israel. That phrase came to be known or given to the Lord when? Remember in the book of Daniel? You remember in the book of Daniel when when Nebuchadnezzar had that great vision of this great 
uh, uh, giant, and, and it represented all the nations of the world. And remember at the end, when the last nation is there, made of the, the, supposedly the revived Roman Empire, uh, made of iron and made of clay, there's a, there's a stone that's taken out of the mountain, and that mountain is thrown at that empire, and that's the rock of ages. That's none other than Jesus Christ. And so let vengeance belongs to the Lord. Ask the Lord if you need to forgive somebody, and the Lord will give you strength. And, and uh, uh, if vengeance needs to be taken, then, then he'll be the one who takes that vengeance. And then he goes on. He says, the God of your father who will help you. In other words, my God. Uh, God is speaking to Joseph, and he's saying, by the God of your father, by the God of Jacob who will help you, and by the almighty uh, me who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, beneath heaven and beneath the sea. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed in this life. Blessings of the breast of the womb. You're going to, be, you're going to multiply. You're going to have many descendants. The blessings of your father. He, now, now, this is God speaking of Jacob. He says, the blessings of Jacob have excelled the blessings of, now Jacob speaks of the first person, of my ancestors. He, he excels the blessings of of uh, Abraham and Isaac. And your blessings are going to excel my blessings. Your life is going to be good all the way till you reach eternity. Look at the next part of uh, the next next piece of that verse there. He says, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, but in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is making his journey to the everlasting hills, to heaven. That's what the everlasting hills are all about. And on the way, he, runs it, he, he comes upon the delectable mountains. That's basically what the Lord is saying here about Joseph. You've had the tough part of your life. Now you're going to have the good part of your life. You're going to live in the delectable mountains all the way till the time you reach the everlasting hills. And they shall be uh, off the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him the brothers aren't going to have any more ability to harm you, Joseph. Uh, and you're going to be above them. And here's the reason you're so blessed. Because you were separate from your brothers. You weren't like your brothers. That's a terrible sort of thing to say as your last words before you die. But that's, what, that's basically what uh, J- uh, Jacob is saying to his other sons. It, Joseph was special because he was separate. From all of you. Listen, as believers, we're special because we've been separated from this world. We're separate from this world. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Lord says to us, Come out from her, come out from this world, my people, and be ye separate. And if you are separate and holy, I, you will be my sons and you will be my daughters. That's how you be, are blessed by God, by being separate from this world, separating yourself from the things of this world. And then now Jacob, as he finishes up, and as we finish up, he comes to the last of the brothers, Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin was his second favorite son. He loved Benjamin. When Joseph was gone, Benjamin was his favorite. So you would expect Benjamin to get the greatest blessing of all, or at least as good as uh, Joseph. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Why? Because this isn't Jacob's blessing. 
This is God's blessing. And for Benjamin, it's more of a curse. Listen to what he says about Benjamin in verse number 27. He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey. And at night, he shall divide the spoil. You want to know about the end of Benjamin? This is about how Benjamin's going to turn out. He's going to turn out as a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey. And at night, he shall divide the spoil. What's he referring to there? He's referring to that incident in Judges chapter 20, which tells us just what happened to the tribe of Benjamin, just how they turned out. They turned out every bit as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that story? I'm not going to go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but do you remember that story over in Judges chapter 20? There was a Levite priest who had a concubine, and he was traveling from Jerusalem uh, up north uh, to Ephraim. And on the way, he needed to stop for the night, and he stopped in Gibeah. And, and he laid out in the court there of the city, and a man came and said, look, you don't want to lay out here. Come in and stay in my house because you, you don't know these people. They're really, really bad. And they found out that this man was staying at that man's house, that this Levite was staying there with his concubine. And all the sons of Benjamin came to the house and beat on the door, and they demanded that they bring the Levite priest out so they could have sexual relations with him. Just exactly the same thing that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's why it's in the book of Judges, to show you just how bad things had gotten in the tribe of Benjamin at that point. They, had, they, they were Sodomites. And, and, and they wouldn't, the, they, the guy wouldn't release the Levite out to the, to the uh, Benjamites. And so he said, look, take her concubine. Take his concubine. And so they threw the concubine in, out there, and they ravaged her all night, and she died. And you remember what happened. It says here, and that and at night he shall divide the spoil. You remember what happened. He cut the concubine up into 12 pieces and sent them to the 12 tribes of Israel or to the 11 other tribes of Israel. And he put a note in there and said, this is what the Benjamites did to my concubine. Now, what is the world of Levite doing with a concubine? I don't know. They were all evil in that day. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. But the nation of Israel, those 12 tribes, came against Benjamin, and they all but wiped them out. There were only a few hundred Benjamites left after that incident. And so they were virtually wiped out. And so it fits that, that prophecy perfectly, what happened there. But also, later on, we have a king, the first king of Israel. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was a Benjamite, and he was a ravenous wolf. And then if you remember, later on in the New Testament, there was a guy who was from the tribe of Benjamin named Saul of Tarsus. And he was a ravenous wolf going out and trying to destroy the church. But now he got changed, didn't he? And, and for, our, for our good. All right, so, he, so he's done with the prophecies now. And, and uh, let's pick up in verse number 28. He says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. And he blessed each according to his own blessing. 
Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the land, in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field, bought with the field of Ephraim the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah and his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons and speaking this prophetic blessing, he drew his feet up into the bed and he breathed his last breath and he was gathered unto his people and he was dead. And not only was he gathered unto his people, he was gathered unto his Lord. The Lord that he had longed to be with his whole life. The Lord Yeshua. As he said, oh, I have waited for you, Yeshua. And now he lives with the Lord today. Remember what Jesus said about Jacob? When he was arguing with the Pharisees about uh, the Sadducees, rather, about the, the uh, eternal life. He says, God is the God of the living. He says, I am the God of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob. And so, so uh, who is he? He's Yeshua. He's Jesus. He's the stone of Israel. So, all of us. Or looking at a clock. I mean, all of us, I don't know where you're at on that clock. I, I know I'm getting close to midnight. And I, I don't, some of you might be closer than I am to midnight. We don't know when that clock's going to strike. We don't know when that prophetic clock's going to strike. And, and so the question I want to ask you, and, and I guess I need to ask myself, is what am I, as I see that clock approaching midnight what am I longing for you know I got to tell you I know what I'm longing for I'm longing to be with the Lord I, don't get me wrong I, I love my family I, I, I love my church family I, I, I love life on this earth to some degree but goodness I am longing to be with the Lord, where everything's made right. I'm longing for the day when we're all walking with the Lord. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, as he was about to die, as he was breathing his lap before they took his head off, he says, Finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day when the clock strikes midnight. He's going to give me that crown. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing through death or through the rapture. Do you long for his appearing? I hope so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for these, these prophetic words that are, it's so amazing to see how much all of this has been fulfilled throughout history and Lord, we know that the rest of it's going to be fulfilled soon. And we just, we, Lord, as believers, we have so much to be grateful for. We have so much hope to long for, Lord.
But the greatest hope that we have to long for is the hope of your coming. The hope of you coming for us and, and, and taking us to be with you. Yeshua, to live with you forever. The one who died for us and saved us. The one who gives us his righteousness. Lord, we are so grateful to you for all you've done for us and all you're going to do for us. Lord, help us to serve you during this difficult time in which we live. Help us to be your, your vessels, Lord, as we, we live out the rest of our lives. We just ask for that grace. We ask it in Christ's name, I pray. Amen.